Hello, and welcome to the 90th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday the 17th of November 2018, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, we welcome Rob Larson, Professor of Economics at Tacoma Community College, to the show. We talk about his new book, Capitalism vs. Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom, recently released by Zero Books. But before that, I'd like to thank all the PayPal and Patreon subscribers. You too can help keep the revolutionary fires burning by becoming a Patreon or leaving a PayPal donation. Doing so will get you the episodes a few days early and will enable you to take part in the upcoming reading group series. And remember, like, share and vote up the episode on YouTube, where I will respond to any comments. Okay, so to the interview. So, Rob, is it true that you went to school opposite Deb's birthplace or where he lived for most of his life? Yes, uh, it's true. Uh, I am from Terre Haute, Indiana, uh, not to name drop. And <laughs> uh, my elementary school, yeah, was across the street from his uh, historical house, yeah, for I think his adult life. It's a you know, modest uh, couple-story house. But even though he's a labor leader and a historic socialist, yeah, presidential candidate, if you're a teacher, you can't ignore a national historic landmark across the street. So a couple of times during grade school, we went over there and got the little tour as small children, not really understanding the big political implications of it. And that was very cool. I look back on that fondly. I'm less fond of the fact that, yeah, that I went to junior high at frigging Woodrow Wilson Junior High School. That was, that's kind of cruel. That's probably by design. What do you think? I don't know. I wonder. I never looked into the history of, yeah, like how that school got designated or what it, how it picked its name, but I definitely wouldn't put it past them. Debs is still sort of a presence in the town, so that's within the question. For people who don't know, that's Eugene Debs, and he ran for U.S. president how many times? Um, it's from memory, four or five times, including one or two runs from prison after being, of course, incarcerated by Woodrow Wilson for uh, speaking against the First World War. It, it, it's funny because I heard you interviewed with, on the Working Pod and maybe another couple of podcasts, This Is Hell, I think as well. I heard you talking about how you got into kind of radical politics or radical economics and it's funny when we mentioned the Eugene Debs one. When I was in school, when I was in my final year in primary school, there was uh, three of us were taken out of the class. We got a couple of weeks to do this project on a thing called the 1913 lockouts in Dublin. And oh. there were this massive kind of like general strike kind of thing in Dublin. We won a, like a, a competition in Ireland or came third and we got to go up to the headquarters of the union building and all this. It, it's funny because that registered ideologically to me on an absolutely no level <laughs> you know when did when did like the dead stuff mean anything to you because it's only looking back 20 years later i go god that was weird i did this like union thing that was really weird and the guy who who led it was a guy called big jim larkin who was you know quite quite close to lenin yeah, that's, yeah, I didn't really get politicized until, you know, I was a college student, typical case, uh, started reading some history and discovered the limitations of how the social sciences are taught. 
and then you get into yeah learning your country's real history and the labor history and i thought oh yeah that's Debs was a real figure, but you know, for U.S. standards, that's an extraordinarily successful socialist figure. And uh, I was delighted after the fact. I always had a vague happiness that I was from a town with an important kind of countercurrent figure. Uh, but it wasn't until years later I realized the real gravity of it. Tell us then, Rob, about about your book. You've released a book. It's the Capitalist versus Freedom. Yeah, capitalism versus freedom. This is uh, kind of driven by something. If you're a student or a young person and you go to a business program or if you just get into an argument with a conservative on campus, uh, very quickly you're going to be handed a copy of you know one of a handful of sort of conservative economic books that sort of function as their policy Bibles. Uh, one, of course, is Fred Hayek's Road to Serfdom. The other one I saw a lot was Milton Friedman's uh, U.S. book, uh, Capitalism and Freedom. And you're handed these books, and it's very, like, read this, and it'll straighten you out, you dirty young leftist. And you're going to be amazed at the arguments in these books, and they're so powerful. If you read them, they're the floppiest, weakest arguments you've ever seen. <laughs> like capitalism and freedom, which, again, Milton Friedman won a Nobel Prize for his economics work, mostly for his more technical work, but, you know, he was recognized as that. If you read Capitalism and Freedom, there is, it's a list of assertions. Like, there's so little effort given to give evidence or persuasive reasons. That book, as I recall, has about a dozen footnotes in the entirety of the manuscript. There's almost nothing. Uh, And if you read Road to Serfdom, it barely barely has a stronger argumentative structure. So I would decide I was sick of these books uh, being pushed on people. And I really felt like there wasn't a single strong leftist economics book that talked about the relationship of freedom of different types to economic systems like capitalism or some form of socialism. So they always say, you know, write the book that you would want to read. (laughs) So I wrote a book rebutting Friedman and Hayek's book, and I called it Capitalism Versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom. And, uh, you know, I'm certainly, I certainly hope the title trolls libertarians at least a little bit. Did you read those books when you were given those books? Did you read them first as not a leftist, not, did you read them from a position of being informed of the counter arguments or from a position of, oh, maybe I should read this book, somebody gave it to me? Yeah, that's a good question. At that time, I was really just more of a, really just more of a conventional liberal, I think, at the time that I first became aware of them. Uh, and then later I became more dissatisfied with the systems themselves and moved past liberalism. But I definitely read, I mean, at, at that time, I definitely didn't do more than read the first few chapters, I'm sure, of capitalism uh, and freedom. It took years later for me to take it up as a project and really dissect the manuscript. I mean, I did look at it like I want to know. I mean, I should say at that time, I was in college for a science degree. I got my bachelor's in biology. (laughs) Uh, So when you're in the sciences, I feel like there is a little bit more of a fair play attitude. You're expected in the sciences to know what the opposing views are to the ones you have, and you're supposed to have evidence for why you're right and they're wrong. So I definitely read some chunks out of it, just wanting to at least you know be articulate and not get blindsided by conservative arguments. So, but it would have been a much more cursory uh, reading than I gave it uh, for this project. It's interesting because, like, I think I read Hayek before I ever read any good left stuff. Hmm. I think I read The Constitution of Liberty. I don't know if you've read that one. That one, I know, I don't think so. I read uh, that main book and a bunch of essays and academic articles, mostly for Hayek. 
what I found was when strikingly similar to what you're saying that when I read it, not from a position of say knowing the counter argument, but a lot of the arguments in it would stand out as being quite weak. And you're kind of saying, is that it? Is this is this the best that the right has to offer? Are these the intellectuals? That's true. And I remember actually looking back at the time when I did first read it, I remember it was when, you know, again, coming out of a science background and just getting more interested in the social issues. One thing that strikes you is like, man, just the standard for argumentation and debate and settling or proving things, it's a lot floppier. It's its definitely not as rigorous. And I mean, fair is fair. In the sciences, we have the luxury of being able to do real experiments and control conditions in a lot of subjects. Social sciences, you know, you have a lot less ability to do that. So fair is fair. But yeah, it's what you discover quickly is like these arguments, like half of it is just innuendo and smearing the other side. And above all, misrepresenting the other side's arguments, which relies on your audience not having read outside of the, what they already believe. But that is so common that on the left and right, the tendency, I mean, is I guess is now a cliche, is people are in a bubble. Like no one, people seldom seem to want to step outside of the media they're already familiar with. You should do it because, you know, if you're wrong, you might learn that. And if you're right, it is a relief to learn how yeah, a modest, the other side's arguments sometimes are. Do you think the left is as misrepresentative of the right as the reverse? Uh, you know, I mean, just my impressions, and I should say I do have a very US-centric perspective on all this. My, I feel like the right's argument really does get out. I mean, certainly here in the US, of course, you know, the national news network that's most common is, uh, that's most popular is Fox News, which is conservative. The biggest TV broadcast network is Sinclair, which is conservative. Right now, the Republican Party dominates literally every wing of national government and most of the state houses. So I feel like their arguments are out in their own words very effectively. So them being misrepresented is difficult to get away with because if you're in an airport and Fox News is on, you're going to hear their arguments. Whereas the left, I mean, we really lack sorely for any national like audio or video platform. You know, Pacifica Radio has been in decline and really there's no other national platform except of course for national periodicals and websites. Uh, but that's a lot less likely for people to be exposed to who aren't already seeking it out, you know? So I do feel like the left is legitimately less understood and represented because we lack national platforms. I mean, that has a real effect. Yeah, I think I was probably more getting towards like if you read Hayek or Freeman or some of these guys who are put forward, I think they frequently misrepresent the arguments of, say, the equivalents on the left. But say someone like Marx or somebody would represent their thoughts precisely and pick the correct hole in the argument. You know, it seems to be it's not a symmetric duality or something. Yeah, and I, I, most definitely. And what's what's a pity about it is if you're being serious intellectually in any field and you want to argue with the other side, as you naturally should in the exchange of ideas, what you want to do, of course, if you're in good faith and being serious, is you go to the other side and find their strongest argument. You know, what's their strongest uh, view? Who's their most articulate defender? You look at their work and see what's wrong in it that you can identify, and then you take that to your own work and say, here's their argument in their words. What's wrong with this? Well, they make these mistakes. 
And do they respond to criticism? If so, put that in there. But you need to be in good faith. But if you are, the whole idea is to take their strongest arguments and pick it apart. If you watch right-wing media or listen to conservative radio, I mean, not only is there never, you know, leftist invited on, there's very few even liberals. And, but they talk about the left continuously. And it's the left believes this evil thing. And the left has this unreasonable idea. And if you don't make any effort to hear about opposed to hear what leftists actually say, you will come away with the understanding that conservatives have on the right, uh, have in the United States, which is that leftists are crazy. They want government to control everything. They want to destroy the family and destroy men. Goofy, goofy views. But it's because none of these folks are taking that healthy debate, fair play ethos of, Go to the other side, see what they actually say. You hear some hilariously distorted version on your friendly media, and people, I think, are just used to making do with that. And, of course, the average person isn't some intellectual who's thinking about these subjects all the time, like some of us might be. You know, they've got you know working lives they have to pay attention to. They have families they're raising. So I realize there's a limit to how much we can expect folks to be keeping up with these debates and actively reviewing opposing views. But it is the type of thing that the intellectuals and media are responsible for. And I, my response is, I think, exactly what you just said. Like, these are the intellectuals. They aren't quoting us. They don't, they don't take us seriously. They don't look at what our arguments are so they can pick them apart. They impugn some crazy view to us and then argue against that. Like, it's beyond a straw man. It's just, I mean, I think what you said is exactly right. These are the intellectuals. I say in the book, these figures are more intellectual opportunists, and it's not a very pretty history. In your book, you, you talk about this concept of two different types of freedom. Yeah, I should say I'm an economist. I'm not a professional philosopher, but you naturally learn social philosophy when you come up in the field. And when you want to write a book like this, of course, that's a major part of it. So just for my lay review, you discover there's lots of philosophical discussion around basic concepts like uh, freedom. And uh, on the most basic level, one tradition has been to split the concepts of freedom and liberty into a couple of categories uh, analytically. And so one, of course, is uh, the one that's sort of most commonly discussed these days is negative freedom, we call it, which sometimes we describe it as the freedom from So the freedom from being controlled or told what to do by someone else, like a big institution or a powerful person, we sometimes call that negative freedom. If you are free to, for example, choose what you want to uh, do with your life as far as your career. So if you're free to choose that, we call that negative freedom because no outside party is dictating to you what you're going to do. Alternatively, Figures like Isaiah Berlin uh, and some of their famous works and others uh, split that apart from another idea, which is positive freedom, which is more freedom to do different things. So, for example, the freedom to consume some of society's production, like having a right or a freedom to consume part of the goods and services we produce every year for your standard of living, that would be positive freedom. And philosophers talk about this distinction and what it means. And I'm only, I think this, frankly, I think this distinction is only somewhat useful. I think it's got some value. Uh, Others who I quote in my book, including conservatives and liberals are skeptical of it or think it makes sense. But I would say what's useful about it is just 
what we can take from that as far as the debate about economics and economic systems. So if you look at these books we've been referring to, like Friedman's books or Hayek's books, they frequently bring up this issue and they say what freedom should mean is freedom from other people's power. So basically the negative freedom concept then. And uh, Milton Friedman makes that point, and Hayek too says, freedom or liberty for us should be freedom from the actions of others. So they basically take the position, and conservatives broadly do, that freedom means not being pushed around by someone else, not having some government or other body being able to tell you what you can consume or what you'll have to do for your work life and your career. And so conservatives often make the point then that freedom means freedom from outside power. And markets provide that freedom because you go to the store and you're free to choose what to buy with your money and you go into the job market, you're free to choose what kind of career you want to pursue. And so they'll make the case that that's what freedom should be. It should be limited to this sort of positive or this sort of negative view and markets provide that. Whereas some leftists or socialist types might say that's good, but there's also a real positive freedom. If we as a society produce a lot of wealth, and uh, people are working to produce that wealth, they should have a right to some proportionate amount of that production. They should be free to consume that rather than being kept from doing that by not having the money because of capitalism. And so the traditional debate is conservatives see freedom as being freedom from the government to tell you what to do. And so they like capitalism, which gives you that socialists want government to uh, you know, tax the wealthy and uh, regulate them and give some wealth back to the poorer people so they promote positive freedom. I think this looks at the debate wrong. My book makes the claim that capitalism, I mean, conservatives agree that capitalism doesn't provide positive freedom. I claim it doesn't provide negative freedom either because we have such an incidence of monopoly and powerful firms and so much concentration of wealth those people have real power over us. So in addition to not providing positive freedom, I would make the case that there's a lot of limits to our negative freedom in the system as well. Yeah, it reminds me of Chomsky's description of the corporation as you know one of the most totalitarian forms of organization ever conceived. And it's amazing. We spend so much of our working lives or so much of our lives working in corporations, top-down control structures that that element is never even brought up at all as an element of freedom. Indeed. And that's, I mean, so striking. Everyone who's had a job knows that your boss has power over you. You're not free to do what you want at work. You're not certainly not free from coercion. You don't have negative freedom. When you're on the clock, your boss can tell you what to do. And if you don't, you're fired. Now, I will say conservatives will try to get around that by saying, ah, well, yes, you may have a tyrannical boss at one job, but because the marketplace provides so many different places you can work, so many different options for your career, you could find one where there's less authoritarianism in the workplace if that bothers you. But of course, this is just phony. I mean, the market goes through concentration. We get bigger and bigger corporate entities dominating market after market. It's a little bit facetious to say, as these conservative figures do, that you can always turn to some other employer. Uh, I remember, for example, uh, Milton Friedman, uh, he wrote a later book uh, with his wife, Rose, uh, Free to Choose, which is actually the one in the U.S. that got the most uh, currency, more than his other books and more than Hayek's books even. Uh, and if you read that, 
There are a number of sections about who protects the consumer and who protects the worker. And of course, they're arguing, you know, they're Reaganites. Friedman advised Reagan and Reagan recorded a video introduction to Friedman's PBS TV show. So they were close. They're arguing against having OSHA or the EPA to protect people and workers. They're saying, they said what really protects workers is other employers. Because you could leave your job and work for another employer, that means your boss, yes, they may have some control over the workplace, but because there's other employers, you have a recourse. And that that's a deterrent to your boss being too authoritarian and intolerable. What a ridiculous fraud this argument is. It just didn't, they don't bring up concentration or big firms like even at all they don't bring them up to absolve them they just don't even introduce them into the discussion and to me what's really funny about this lately is the relatively recent uh, revelation of how widespread non-compete clauses are in employment contracts so if you get contracted to work even like in the fast food industry wrapping burritos or making subway sandwiches very commonly now these part-time job uh, job contracts included on compete so if you stop working for subway or uh, you know a chipotle burrito you're barred for so many years from working for a competing sandwich or burrito place so even the extremely limited deterrent to your boss's authoritarianism that's represented by a alternative places you can work, even that is now gone because everyone from Subway sandwiches up to Amazon's warehouse workers are governed by these legal agreements. And maybe they enforce them, maybe they don't feel like it. But the point is, it puts the gun in the employer's hand and the decision in their court about whether they will sue you if you, after they fire you, you go to work for someone else. So even there, the Friedman's argument is just utterly bankrupt. And so, of course, most of us, that's why we're in touch with the reality of having a boss and working in a, yeah, like Chomsky said, a very strict hierarchical, and I mean, realistically, these days, totalitarian work environments, you're scarcely more, you're rarely more surveilled than when you're at work in a lot of modern workplaces where your interactions with your computer are tracked, where the movement of your Amazon warehouse inventory monitoring equipment is tracked. So you're utterly under the eye of Big Brother. He's just a corporate Big Brother now. But absolutely, that again is such a gaping blind spot in the analysis of these conservatives who are very perceptive of power and control. If it's a public agency or some foreign government, suddenly all of that disappears when it's, yes, the U.S. corporate workforce. So that's definitely a, a a weak point in the structuring why do you think then that they focus so much on freedom as a line of attack well you know every power system wants to justify itself somehow and usually it's by appealing to some legitimately good sentiment or desire that they pretend to fulfill you know so the u.s government and military pretends to be spreading democracy around the world even as we help these Saudis blow up school buses in Yemen, you know, that's cloaked in you know, freedom and democracy. When the Soviet Union wanted to invade Afghanistan, well, we're spreading socialism and national self-autonomy to this country. No, you're not. No, you're not. This is part of your empire. You're justifying it in that way. So I think that these figures justifying, in our case, capitalism, uh, with the language of freedom and liberty, I think it's another 
specimen of that genre. Now, your real question is like, why did they choose freedom and not something else? I mean, frankly, I think that's the the craftiness of the market apologetics is I think freedom is the highest aspiration and the most beautiful goal that we have. I start the book by saying, you know, there's a reason why we think so positively of the idea of freedom and why it means so much to us and why people are willing to give up their lives to support freedom, or at least for something that they think will help freedom. Because freedom represents the ability to do what you want to do in your life, like whatever work you want to do, whatever products you want to consume, whatever media and culture and entertainment you want to expose yourself to and where you want to go in the world, all those things require freedom, like the ability to do things you want to do within material limits. Like that's everything that we want to do with our lives is bound up in the ideas of freedom and liberty. So I think, you know, justifying a system of power, capitalism in this case, uh, they need some noble ideals. Well, we'll defend the freedom of Jeff Bezos to decide which cities in the North America will have a future. Like that's a kind of freedom. And so the Soviet Union could claim they're promoting a certain kind of equality. And here our intellectuals are promoting a certain kind of freedom. Big surprise, they actually end up being kinds of freedom that support whatever powerful person is supporting them. But I think it's it speaks to that longer tradition. And also, though, yeah, to how important and beautiful and ideal freedom is. They picked a good inducement to get people to stop thinking critically <laughs> about our economic system. How much of it was the easy target of the Bolshevik type of socialism that was put in place across the world? That's a great question, you know, and I I, I mean, that's a legitimate historical question that probably, you know, needs real evidence to answer. My impression is uh, a lot, frankly. I mean, if I, I have this view and I think it's somewhat heretical among socialists, but frankly, I think the Bolsheviks doomed the world by <laughs> creating this incredibly violent, cruel dictatorship, incredibly intolerant of dissent and uh, notoriously, hideously violent in protecting and expanding its own power. And a lot of Marxists and Leninists will want to defend the especially earlier phase of the Russian Revolution and above all Lenin the leader in the very early period uh, before giving way to Stalin and saying, you know, they were up against all the combined forces of the Western world after being defeated in World War I. They then had to fight, you know, the proxies and the actual armed forces of the Western countries, including the U.S., which actually invaded and occupied, you know, the remains of Imperial Russia. So they can make a case that the violence of that war and the aggression of the West led to this. But I think it's difficult if you look at Lenin's writings and his clear authoritarianism, especially as he got closer to power and his stated views sort of evolve away from the nice socialism of the April theses and gets closer to, you know, his statements and his actions as the head of the new so-called socialist regime. I think it's difficult to say that Lenin was not a uh, somewhat of an opportunist figure himself. And by claiming that his society represented socialism and freedom, I mean, I think that's a good question you asked, because frankly, I think that that, the ability of the Western world to say that's what socialism is, the dungeon of Russian dictatorship and the genocide against the Ukrainians for resisting, you know, that has been a bludgeon that has been enough to more or less defeat socialism ever since, even though we would envision a very different society from the Soviet Union. I mean, it's, that's just such a powerful and convenient weapon. 
I think that is at least half of the Western world's ability to resist sensible democratic control over the economy and sensible socialism. Like that's been the tool. It's dictatorship. You're going to bring Stalin to us. A little of that goes a long way. So I think the answer is a lot. <laughs> it reminds me when you talk about, I know I've uh, heard Chomsky saying similar things about Lenin, about how he, you know, he wrote one thing before it and then afterwards he behaved differently. You know, I think an awful lot of Marxists want to give Lenin a pass because they have this idea of it was a, at least it was a successful revolution. I remember when I was in the States and it was about 2006 or seven, and I was coming back to the airport. I saw Barack Obama's Audacity of Hope was on sale just before, you know, he was elected a couple of years beforehand. And I'd read some like puff piece in The Economist, in the Economist magazine. And uh, I read it and, you know, this is before I was kind of radicalized. And I read it and I went, oh, that's very good. And then like a few years later, when I started getting into Marx and stuff, and after the 2008 collapse, I was like kind of going, God, you know, he was obviously just selling us a line, Obama <laughs> was. You know, it was just obvious. You know, when you read it back, I couldn't believe I, I fell for it. And I think sometimes on the left, on the left, people are not willing to think that Lenin could be selling somebody a, a line as well. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, yeah, pretty much. I feel like if you talk to, uh, excuse me, if you talk to, uh, yeah, a lot of Marxists, you will get that. And frankly, actually, Obama is not a bad parallel because, I mean, at least in a lot of cases, I feel like there is a sort of emotional connection there. Once you've spent years celebrating a figure, whether it's, you know, a conservative Democrat like Obama or a sort of authoritarian revolutionary like Lenin, there is a tendency to form an emotional bond. We're only humans and we're not studying geology here and different kinds of rocks or something like we're studying human beings and you tend to develop, you know, human attachments to figures that you have even just intellectual affection for. And that does, I think that's a real pattern. So figures like Obama, it's even now it's very difficult to get, yeah, just Hillary Democrats here in the United States to realize, yeah, Obama was a fairly conservative Democrat like the Clintons. And that's been a big change in the party. And likewise, I think it's tough. Yeah. to talk to a lot of Marxists into uh, considering that there could be uh, like legitimate problems with Lenin's views separate from the fact that Stalin succeeded him. And I think it's partially because of how effective that bludgeon has been that we referred to before of associating socialism with uh, the Soviet Union. I think there's a reason why in the United States, the somewhat less authoritarian pictures of socialism and even libertarian socialism, to mention Chomsky again, who's identified with that. I think there's a reason that that's somewhat caught on more in the U.S. than uh, traditional Marxist socialism, or indeed European social democracy uh, in the U.S. I remember Tariq Ali, the uh, Pakistani intellectual, said that he thought anarchist socialism had a better future in the United States than Marxist socialism did, because in the United States we have a strong anti-government authoritarian tradition and People are still drawn to socialist ideals, but they want to get them in a significantly less authoritarian package. Indeed, that's sort of uh, the issue that a lot of this turns on. So I, I think there's something to that. And for that reason, I feel that the United States has been very lucky to have a few legitimately national libertarian socialist figures like Chomsky. And even just lately, 
having some real national platforms for that. Like we have this uh, magazine in the U.S. now, Current Affairs, which is a very playful, very visually beautiful, uh, humor-oriented political magazine that takes a fairly libertarian socialist line. And we could criticize Lenin and Marx in those pages. And it's so exciting. So I feel like there is a real momentum maybe for that uh, school of socialism within our broader democratic socialism renaissance happening right now. I think there's real reasons in the US why that's uh, got a certain cash. It's funny you mention that because I, I kind of think the other way now. I think that after failure of Occupy movement to hmm. get any change, I think that the left has looked towards Marx again more so than b- before that moment. That's very possible too. You know, I, I, I much like other areas politically, like there is uh, some walling off, and you have to t- put in some effort to keep up with uh, with different schools are coming out. I would say that that today, I think the way you said is true. I think these days we're seeing a renaissance in socialist interest interest across the board. And indeed, I mean, speaking to what you're saying, of course, like the big breakout socialist venue in the United States right now is Jacobin. And Jacobin, and God bless it, I'm a big fan of Jacobin. I'm delighted to have it on the national scene. I've been happy to read it and occasionally write for it. So I'm a big fan of them. But of course, they're definitely more of a Marxist-oriented socialist venue. And I mean, of course, coming out of the hard sciences, my view is the more diversity of socialist views, the better. Like I am, remember, again, Chomsky, he said he wasn't a Marxist. I believe he called himself a derivative fellow traveler. I like that a lot. I feel that way. I owe a huge debt to Marxist, the Marxist tradition, developing all these frameworks of analysis and crucial ideas on alienation and the power of wealth and all these crucial ideas. But I feel like there is a lot of, I mean, at times, dogmatic aspects to some of the schools of Marxism. So I I feel like the best thing that could happen is what we're seeing now, which is a big growth of all these different podcasts with different leftist views, a couple of like a, a renaissance in national leftist publishing with different socialist outlooks. I mean, what could be better than that? So I think that there is uh, plenty of room for all of this in the new socialist renaissance. Absolutely. It's funny, I've just been reading a book by this guy called Mike McNair. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Have you ever heard of him? I don't think I know him. He's a, he's a British guy. He's a professor of, I think, of law in Oxford. But he's also like a member of the Communist Party of Great Britain. I, <laughs> somebody put me onto this book he wrote about Marxist or like radical left political strategy. And in it, he basically looks at it's kind of like he's he's a member of these analytical Marxists. He he looks at all of the different positions that different left parties have taken and analyzes them strategically and tactically. But one of them he was talking about, say, what Lenin did. One big thing that Mike Maynier goes on about is hmm. the strategy of, say, the SPD in Germany before World War One, and how it was the classical orthodox Marxist strategy was to slowly grow whatever left party you have until you get a majority and then you have your revolution or whatever it is needs to take power. And that Lenin did not do that. They went with a small party and tried to take power. So they were, even if, even if he had, even if you give him the benefit of the doubt, it was a bad strategical error. And he also said that in, I think, 1871 or something, there were some revolutions in, in Europe and mm-hmm. that Russia was paid, I think, by the British 
to come in and quash them. <laughs> and that at the time, Marx said, look, if he, if you had of just had a revolution in Russia at that time, it might have brought socialist revolutions across Europe. And Lenin applied that kind of idea of if you do it in Russia first, it might come everywhere else. But the conditions were completely different because the Russians weren't suppressing stuff in other countries. So even if you give Lenin like all the benefit of the doubt, this is my kind of point of view of it, that you would look at and you would think that like, well, they're two pretty big strategical errors. And how, why is this guy so revered? If they're like fundamental problems with the approach that was taken. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, there's a lot to say about this, but I think, I think that that gets toward the kind of the key of the issue. Like to me, like more than anything else, I would like to see a real socialist economy in the U S and the world where the workforce is in control of the means of production. And we have a rough level of equality among people and don't have super powerful entities or individuals who control what happens. But I wouldn't want that to happen like against the will of the people in the United States. Like all this, I mean, as people say now, Leninist tendency, I feel like a lot is, as he said, have the, have the vanguard party. We're the cutting edge. We know what's best. We have sophisticated analysis. Most people don't. That's okay. We'll lead them. We'll make decisions on their behalf. Like to me, this is not a socialist vision. Like if it's about workforce control of production, like it needs to be a democratically based process. And certainly if it's going to be through a revolutionary transition, like revolutions that are brought about by small groups don't end with lots of freedom for people. <laughs> That's a relatively uncommon you know revolutions get led by that are led by small violent groups lead to societies dominated by those groups historically and most revolutions look like that i wouldn't want to have socialism at over the heads of the people in this country then they'll just be against it like it won't be socialism then there's violent repression and now we've just lost the socialist spirit of freedom and free association and developing our economy through open collaboration i feel like these kind of socialist tactics or any kind of political tactics, they should be rooted at least in part on what your goal is socially. And if your goal is a bunch of smart people like you and your friends, usually, usually people who want some small group in charge, see themselves as being in that group. So if you want yourself and a small group of your friends to be in charge, yeah, sure. By all means, you guys keep being crafty and keep information to yourself. But if you want like a mass revolution where people broadly want a change in society and to bring about another one, like I don't see any way except through broad participation in whatever political process, I mean, hopefully shy of revolution, but that's definitely within the question. I, I feel like if you look historically societies are so shaped by whatever revolution or transition they went through. And the more violent it is, like the incredibly violent Russian revolution, the more violent the outcoming regime tends to be. So I tend to look at the issue through that kind of framework. What happens then if you're when you're teaching economics in your in your college, what happens when you'd like do a, a bit of a radical mic drop in the middle of one of your <laughs> lectures? You know, what's the general uptake or the feedback from young people are they pro your your take or is it 80 20 50 50 or what's your instinct on it right on yeah i mean that's that's a, a really fun question to talk about one thing i should say first is like within my actual classroom i tend to limit the amount of fun radicalism that i give voice to i there is a lot to talk about in an econ class and broadly speaking 
Uh, I always hated it when I was a student and professors would give you a version of the subject that was like the most favorable version of it for their view. Like I had conservative professors and teachers and liberal and leftist ones. And it was, you know, not to say that it made the classes bad, but I never, that was never my favorite way to do it, to, you know, advance discussion in the classroom. And so frequently, regardless of what the students say, I feel like a good educator, you should be kind of getting them used to critical thinking and exposing them to some opposing views. So even when students will voice a leftist view in my class, the first thing I tend to do is to say, okay, well, what are the downsides to that? Because that's, I feel like what a teacher should do, like a, a figure whose work I respect on this subject, maybe ironically, uh, is Norman Finkelstein, the uh, somewhat prominent uh, analyst of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, who of course uh, had a famous episode where he was blocked from his successful tenure bid at DePaul University years ago, primarily because of horrifying actions by the famous lawyer and douchebag Alan Dershowitz, who kind of just destroyed his <laughs> career, basically. Uh, it's a pretty heinous uh, story. You should People should read about it. It's interesting. But Finkelstein, for his part, who is quite outspoken views, he himself said, I mean, this is from memory. He wrote this somewhere. He, he said, it's a podium, not a soapbox. Like, it's a venue for teaching people and getting them to think about the world and getting them used to confronting their ideas, to listening to debate, making them think that maybe they should seek out opposing views to see if they are still right about something. Like that, I thought that made a lot of sense. And so in my classroom, I spent a lot of time teaching, yeah, how our nice neoliberal models work. And I spent a lot of time criticizing them and pointing out that we have big, powerful firms and we have big externalities like pollution and all these flaws. I feel like that's within my professional responsibility, but I tend to only seldom get into my own views and my own anti-establishment socialist views. Usually that comes up when a student asks, especially if they ask about Bernie Sanders or uh, Ocasio-Cortez, you know, our insurgent uh, democratic socialist figures here. That tends to be how it comes up. So just to make that point that uh, I, I don't feel like I should be indoctrinating them into my views even though they totally should have my views. It's not my job as a 200 level educator to be shoving socialism down their throat. And I say that despite the fact that my adjunct at my institution teaching economics, I have a part-timer, you know, a part-time instructor as we often do over here. Uh, he's a very sweet guy who I love and he's really nice and he's an arch conservative and he shows them Austrian economics in some somewhat extensively. And I told him like, I expect you to have you know, opposing, you know, more conventional Keynesian views. But I'm fine with him doing that. Like, I want the students to hear from leftists and rightists in their education. I actually feel like that's a thing that should happen. Now, as far as what the kids think, that's another story. And I will say, when I talk to my uh, leftist friends, and they're feeling pessimistic or unhappy about the current political situation, which is very understandable, <laughs> the first thing I tell them is, you know, the kids... I like this young generation. These kids have much healthier. I don't really understand where it comes from. And maybe I'm only seeing part of it myself, but from my experience, yeah. When the students give their own views or when they ask questions or express themselves in their work or their papers, uh, it's quite predominantly at least liberal by us standards. Uh, the level of support for figures like Sanders is extremely high. When people talk about Bernie bros, 
in the U.S., like just dudes are into Sanders, women like Clinton, I suppose. Every man and woman who I talk to under 45 loves Senator Sanders and is annoyed at how he was treated in the U.S. presidential primary. So there's definitely a lot of leftist timber in this new generation. I'm not exactly sure why. I think a lot of it has to do with like these kids are coming up seeing big social changes like, you know, uh, the Supreme Court legalizing same-sex marriages and civil unions. That was a big change. Uh, but these kids are also coming of age at a time that by the time they're done, even at my community college after a couple of years, they owe tens of thousands of dollars. And certainly by the time they're done with their undergrad or God help them, graduate school educations, you, they're always, they owe these fantastic amounts of money. I, I myself am still paying down my student loans from grad school. I'll admit that. <laughs> so I think combinations of these things are making these young people significantly more left of center than uh, past generations have been, at least going by the stereotypes we have. And so I tell my friends that if you're bummed out, go find some kids and talk to them and let them tell you what they think and then tell them why they should be radicalized. They will probably listen. They're often very receptive to people explaining why they're shackled to a pyramid of debt at such a young age. So there's definitely some encouraging signs there. On the other hand, there are some nasty counter signs too. I mean, one reason I wrote this book is because if you talk to young uh, folks, especially some of the younger boys, especially the white younger boys, especially the ones with no big health problems, libertarianism is a major strain, even among this younger generation in the U.S. And I, it's always significantly fewer than the Sanders-type kids, for sure. And of course, I teach on the West Coast, so maybe there's a reason for that. But there's always a very persistent, uh, small but quite persistent and vocal number of students who are uh, some version of libertarian, maybe a Ron Paul, maybe a full-on Austrian purist. <laughs> uh, there's, of course, diversity in that movement, just like among socialists. But that's always a strong tendency. And again, mostly among the dudes. I think it, I uh, people refer to this all the time. I, remember I read Peter Thiel, the famous libertarian co-founder of uh, PayPal and a Facebook board holder, a Facebook board member and supporter of Donald Trump. And he said, um, I mean, again, this is from memory, but he referred to women and minorities as being poor recruiting grounds for libertarians or some words to that effect. I'm not remembering that well. But he made that case that women and people who aren't white tend to be harder to turn libertarian. And I think that probably tells the story. Like women, you know, what it's like to be pushed around and treated a certain way by men all the time. People who aren't white know what it is to not be at the very center of social privilege and people who don't have money and those characteristics, especially tend to realize that, no, we should have some social standards. We need a safety net. I might have a child and the man runs out on me someday. I don't like this every person for themselves libertarianism, but it's a strain among the kids. Uh, like you said, is it 80, 20? Hmm. I, my impression is it's somewhere in that, that that ballpark. The strong majority, at least in my professional experience, uh, is Sa Senator Sanders or left of that. But the Ron Paul Libertarian Caucus is a strong thing. And that's one reason why I wrote this book. If you look at leftists, we don't have a lot of, at least from my review of the literature, I don't see a lot of real writing that's at an accessible level 
and explaining why libertarianism is wrong and awful and no one should support it. And that's another reason why I wrote this book. I was, I didn't see anyone fulfilling that need. And especially when we've got young people with these kind of views, like we need to capitalize on that. We do not control national media like the right does. This is a, one of our few advantages is if we have a sympathetic young generation. So I think we should capitalize on that and make sure that young people tilting toward libertarianism read something similar to my book, at least before we uh, lose them and squander our opportunity. Getting back to your book then, the book is not necessarily that much about economics. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair point? It's, it's a mixture of economics and politics and, and environmental science comes up a lot too. It's more, it's more of a political book than an economic theory book or something. Pop economic book? Yeah, you know, I, I guess I don't know exactly how I characterize it. People sometimes refer to academic writing and then contrasting that with movement writing, where you're writing something for the purpose of being accessible to a lot of people and, yeah, playing a role in a political conversation. So, uh, you know, a movement writing or movement economics with a lot of politics in it. That's probably a fair description. We, ha we have, say, two of the main guys that you're kind of critiquing are Hayek and Friedman. In your general life as an economist, how ideological is the profession, like, on an individual basis? I know, like, there would be people that are just, like, you know, jobbing, working professors, economists, whatever. But how ideological is it? I would say extremely ideological. I'm annoyed. I, we, you know, we just started the new academic year. And the first thing I talk about in my class with my students is how the sciences work. Because people generally agree that scientists have their shit together. And, you know, we're able to predict eclipses and they actually happen on the predicted date. So those subjects people agree on and there's some success. So I feel like that helps us get our feet on the ground. I tell my students on the second or third day, I'm annoyed that we call them social sciences. Because we do not, as we, as I've been saying, we like we do not take a scientific approach to these subjects. It's an ideological approach. I think this is often the case in poli sci as well as economics. And what you said is exactly right. Like there are many economists who are you know, more technical, and they're interested in their area of specialization. And idea, you know, they have ideology like anyone does, but it doesn't play a big role in their work. And they make sure they can justify everything they say about what this tax policy change will do or what a corporate investment of the size will bring about. But if you look at people who are discussing, you know, when people are discussing the subjects more broadly, I mean, it's a, almost a one-to-one -one ability to map what economic models they think are plausible and what historical lessons they think make sense. You can map that to their personal political and social ideology pretty, pretty consistently. And that's one reason why I put such a high value on weeding outside of your own views. Like I read the Wall Street Journal every day and I sat, I read through these and several other right-wing books and articles to write this book. And I quote these figures at length in my manuscript because I want people to know what that side says and then to know exactly how stupid and wrong it is. But you can't do it without starting from that point of view. And in the sciences, that's just basic. If you're in biology, you know, or chemistry or something, and you write a paper about why this model is correct and not that one, and don't give careful evidence and reading, and above all, if you don't show good faith and clearly show you understand the other side, you're going to get laughed out of that scientific journal and you'll never be published there. But in the social sciences, including econ, it's so ideological. 
I remember when I was first getting into the field and I had just finished my biology degree. And, you know, this, so this, you know, the sciences, you learn what evidence and arguments are. And I was looking at trying to find uh, some econ grad program in the U.S. that was anything other than predominantly conservative, which is the typical position for econ programs. Often they're within, they're housed within business schools, which are famously conservative. And you have a number of Keynesian programs, of course, in the U.S. that New Deal legacy still lives on, even if it's got limited policy influence. Uh, but finding a school that's actually leftist in the United States was almost impossible. Uh, I literally was able to find five, <laughs> uh, including the one I went to, the U of Missouri, Kansas City, which is a great econ program. There's a lot of variety, uh, and you'll learn conventional theory, but you'll get a lot of interesting outside ideas and a very rigorous education too that way. So what you discover, but I remember I was looking around for programs. I was talking uh, to, I think, you know, the advisor for the econ program uh, in Bloomington, Indiana, Indiana University, where I was. And he said something like, I referred to one of these leftist programs as a possibility for me. I think I mentioned UMass Amherst, which is a famously great leftist program. And uh, this advisor said, he said, oh, UMass, I don't know what they've been doing since the Berlin Wall came down. And he said it like, just like that. Like he said it like slowly, like he's making this unbelievable burn on those dirty communists. Like it's just ideology. Like you're not being serious. Like if that school is wrong, it's wrong, but they aren't Stalinists. Like you don't know what you're talking about. I remember in that moment, that was a crystallizing moment. It's coming out of biology and I'm talking to an econ advisor. Like this guy's a professor in the program. He's a PhD in economics. And he has this dumb political put down for a program that has ideas that he's displeased with. What a friggin' fraud this is. Like, do you call this a social science? These are social ideologies. So in my view, I mean, I think the answer to your question is a lot of ideological. It's, I mean, frankly, I talk about this in the book too. Sometimes it's amazing how far these characters are willing to go to ignore other views or other ideas or inconvenient evidence because they're committed to a social ideology and it's hard for them to climb down. They feel embarrassed. It's like making someone lose a political argument. And that's the opposite of what you should do in the sciences. You know, if you give up on a view in the sciences because of evidence against you, that's considered like a strong move. That's like admired <laughs> in the uh, hard sciences, but in the social sciences, people treat it like they're a football team. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, to me, you know, the point of this book is, Freeman and Hayek say markets provide negative freedom. So, and that's the definition of freedom that they basically rely on in their books. So rather than digging super deep into the subtle diff different concepts of freedom, most of what my book does is say, okay, fine. Well, what kinds of power are there in the marketplace? Since, you know, concentrated power is supposed to be the adversary of our negative freedom, how much power is there? Well, of course, as any of us will realize already, there's a giant amount, but the wrinkles of it and the forms it takes, uh, it's interesting. And so I talk about media power and uh, its relationship to freedom, which is pretty crucial when we have such a concentrated corporate media market. And the last chapter, I talk about ways to try to organize society on a socialist basis with an eye toward maximizing freedom, which is an issue. If we have to have a political movement to strip Jeff Bezos and Rupert Murdoch of their corporate property, you know, they'll defend it with violence at some point. And that's when it becomes a revolutionary situation. So I spent some time trying to look at how we avoid 
becoming militaristic and violent and coercive and losing our freedom, which of course would be one of the big concerns if we have a major socialist movement in the future. Uh, so that's something that uh, readers might be interested in. The other thing uh, that we haven't mentioned, just to say it briefly, is uh, the fourth chapter of my book. We take a look at these ideas of freedom and people's ability to act on you against your will. I feel like one area that's kind of unexplored, or at least my <laughs> philosophical exploration hadn't gotten me to it, uh, was the issue of, fu- of like time and future generations. Like every past generation has a ex- in a way, exerts some power over us because their decisions and their acts in the past shaped the basic landscape that we live in. Just on that basic level, it means you know that we too have some power over the future. If we decide to start building socialism or fighting climate change, that will change the options that are available for future generations. And so there is some power there. And so the fourth chapter, I try to take a look at what we could say about the future and future generations through the lens of freedom. And what we realize is if to the extent that we're accepting an unsustainable economic system, we are horrifyingly chopping away at the freedom that future generations will have to have any kind of decent ability to live or to have a a decent standard of living in the first place even. And so I feel like there's some under, at least underexplored territory in terms of what our, our current economic system will mean for future generations. And so in that chapter, I take the year 2100 as a reference point, because if you read the scientific literature on the environment these days, there's a common tendency to say, okay, what are we going to see as far as climate change? What about sea level rise? What about species extinctions and land use changes? And they tend to peg it toward the end of the century just as a base mark. Well, if you survey the scientific literature using that year as a base mark, it's pretty damn horrifying. And it would mean serious compromises to the freedom of future generations. Some scientists are predicting that by the end of the century, uh, some already hot parts of the world by then will become literally uninhabitable for much of the year. And it's areas like central India, the Persian Gulf, major heavily populated parts of the world that now may be like unsurvivable outdoors in the summer months. Like that is a fucked up compromise of future generations liberty like how can you argue against that and so the fourth chapter of my book tries to make this connection of freedom and future generations it's kind of interesting but those are sort of the uh different ramifications of the issue that the book takes up yeah definitely i've listened to some recent chomsky video uh, talk on the climate models the most recent world climate model is saying there's a think a 93 percent chance of a four degree rise by the end of the century i'm sure that's uh celsius degrees of course not our yes. gentle american it, fahrenheit yes yeah and like that could literally melt the permafrost and release the methane in the arctic and then we're all dead yeah if there's if there are significant positive feedback loops like that one you're describing uh and it certainly looks like there are uh that will be a horrible aggravating factor on this. These are the scary X factors that have so many of us trying to do something about the issue, you know, on the left and why so many scientists are pulling their hair out. And I can say too, uh, if you keep up with scientific journals or research on these subjects at all, and since my undergrad, I've tried to at least, you know, maintain casual acquaintance with what's going on in the fields, especially environmental science, which was always one of my big interests. If you look at that, like the scientists themselves, like these dispassionate, detached, 
trying to be politically neutral when they talk about this because they don't want to politicize their field. These figures, if you read what they say now, they're bummed out. Like they are, there's some serious depression and despair happening among these poor scientists because they're, they are more than anyone else have their eyes on the early signs of where we're headed. And they're, they are unhappy about it. And it sucks because they've been trying to get people to pay attention to it for decades. And the fossil fuel industry was able to politicize the issue in the nineties. It's actually well studied how they did it and the money they put into industry back think tanks that made it a partisan issue. Republicans don't accept this. That might not have happened had the fossil fuel industry above all Exxon worked so hard to, to get that to happen. So they, there's real anxiety in the field. I remember like they're trying to make it something people pay attention to. I think it may be too late, but they try. I remember uh, some scientists saying recently uh, in a little science news venue talking about how you know we've been saying for years, climate change is coming. It's in the near future. And now here we sit referring mainly to the U S and our hurricanes and the horrible West coast fires that we have out here because of the droughts. She said, here we sit in our muggy and smoky discomfort. I thought that was like, that's, scientists don't like talk that way in print a lot. Like that's not like a typical sort of expression or uh, sentiment that they express. And it shows like the scientists themselves are going through some emotional or spiritual or personal process here where they're coming to grips with the fact that the world's not heeding their warnings. And it's, it's, it's messing them up, at least to the extent that we look at what they say. So I don't know. I feel like this, and I should, this connects back to what we said before. If you talk to young people and what they're interested in, like what issues they're interested in politically, things like student loan debt and health insurance are like usually toward the top, but climate is one of the issues they're most in touch with, probably because they're smart enough to add numbers and know that they're the ones we're going to see some of the more fucked up aspects of this, whereas you and I may be in the ground before it gets uh, very bad. So I think this is, again, when people are despairing on this issue, the young people are interested in larger numbers than we've seen in the past. And we should be getting connected. I tell my friends all the time, like, it's so easy to be filled with despair politically these days. Nothing helps with that more than actually being in some social activism, not just going online and reading what your leftist friends say on Facebook and Twitter and posting stuff and maybe writing an article, but actually going out and doing an action of some type with other human beings that are in front of you physically. It's rejuvenating, oddly. I mean that literally too, because often you'll talk to younger juvenile people and their fresh political young person energy. It's it's positive. So as much as these issues are horrifying and what the scientists are going through should be scary to us, just you know, for you and me and for all our listeners, we should remember like the way to feel better about this is to get back into the process and put your foot back in some real, actual, street-level activism. That's at least helped me deal with these dark realizations. Well, on that wildly positive note, Rob, thanks very much for coming on the show today. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. My pleasure. And thanks for your cat coming on the show as well. Yes, I was sure you couldn't hear her at all with her gabbiness.
On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening. Please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Thank you.